Welcome to the Reality Taboo, where no topic is off limits. It's February 1st, 2024. I'm Jeff. Joining me is my co-host, Ness. Last week in my introduction, I mentioned top mentioned some topics that we didn't actually get around to discussing. So this week, I'm skipping the preamble and we're diving right in. The only thing I'll say up front is that we're going to start by exploring the term Judeo-Christian. So um, let's get into it. But Before we get into that topic, I have a quick correction to make from last week. I slandered the uh, late Cassius Dio by... Uh, insinuating that he was an unreliable historical source when I was thinking of the Historia Augusta. My apologies. I'm sure I'll forgive you. So, Judeo-Christian. That's a somewhat contentious term. Um, I'm interested in exploring why it's contentious. First of all, what does the term mean? Uh, What are the implications of it? When did it start being used? And why specifically, why do a lot of people especially on the alt-right or dissident right, have an issue with that term. So for me, I, on the surface at least, I don't see a major issue with the term for a variety of reasons. Uh, most basically, Jesus was a Jew. He lived as a Jew. He practiced kosher. He followed the Torah. He followed the Abrahamic law. He did not break the Sabbath, despite what the Pharisees claimed he did. Uh, he followed perfectly the law, uh, the covenant, the old, uh, the old Testament, everything that's in the Old Testament. So, despite all that, there's people who don't like that term. Ness, what do you, what do you think that the uh, resistance to that term comes from? Well, do you think that Judeo-Islam or Christianic Islam or some other combination of either of those religious uh, faiths in connection with Islam also makes sense? Uh, I do not. If you're speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, the connection from Christianity to Judaism makes uh, it's almost it's inextricable. Um, because obviously Christianity came after Judaism and it explicitly uh, is built upon the Old Testament. For instance, Augustine, uh, quote from Augustine, quote, the New Testament is hidden in the Old. The Old is made accessible by the New. There is a very clear link um, that I do not believe exists at all in the same way uh, that Christianity has to Islam. Now, I know that Islam acknowledges Jesus, I believe. as a, I don't know very much about Islam, so I can't speak much on that. But I do know that they certainly hold Jesus and revere him and many of the Old Testament prophets. So I, I see what you're saying by there being a connection. But I guess just Judaism and Christianity are, are much closer, to me, are have a closer connection than Islam and the other two. I think that's only because they're closer in time. But there is no Islam without Judaism. So I think that's a rather arbitrary distinction. And we look at the term Judeo-Christian and we see from Google Ingram Books Viewer that shows the percentages of terms that have been used over, historically have been used in a whole library of published English works shows that the term was effectively invented in the mid-20th century in the wake of World War II. So you have two millennia almost of Christian history where 
to put it my to 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 understate it, it would be an understatement to say that the over those two thousand years, leading Christian thinkers would have recoiled at the idea that Judaism and Christianity were were like blood brothers, or that the the terms that there there was so much shared between them, especially theologically. You look back at going from John Chrysostom to Martin Luther and everywhere in between before and after. And there are things that are said about Jews that couldn't be published anywhere. <laughs> Even anonymously on the internet, it would be hard to publish them under a, a pseudonym um, that was not hiding behind the idea that they were looking at it from a historical perspective, but were instead making the arguments that a lot of these leading Christian thinkers have made throughout the course of Christian history. I know Martin Luther, um, I've read parts of his uh, On the Jews and Their Lies. That's the treatise you're referring to. And I think his frustration came from, he early in his career, he was uh, seemingly not hostile to Jews. And I think the frustration for him came from, he thought that the Jews just didn't know about the Word of God. And that once the, the gospel and... Uh, Basically, that it wasn't Jews per se that were the problem. He didn't have a problem with Jews per se. He had a problem with them not getting on board with the the break from Judaism that Jesus represented. Yeah, I don't think the argument is that Christian thinkers throughout the ages have had an issue with ethnic Judaism. It is the fact that Jews, from the Christian perspective, very clearly were the murderers of Christ. And repentance is it, it is a universal monotheistic religion and i think more than anything else that monotheism is the legacy uh, or monotheism in christianity is the legacy of judaism more than any other aspect of christianity relative to other religious traditions so you said that the term judeo-christian uh, would have been anathema to earlier Christian thinkers, uh, such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, I assume, people like that. Um, but today, not only does the term is not offensive to at least Christian leaders, bishops, uh, priests, they embrace the term Judeo-Christian. And for instance, Robert Barron, I just watched a video on him. He goes out of his way to embrace the term and talk about how much work the church needs to do to combat anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, even the idea of it is antithetical to being a Christian. You can't be a Christian and be anti, quote, anti-Semitic. So presumably he's saying, obviously completely repudiating uh, people like Martin Luther. So how, what's your, re what do you think is the reason why there'd be such a uh, complete rejection of the term to now a, an embrace of the term? I think that's a mischaracterization to say it's an embrace. I, I think if you polled Americans, most people would say that that's not a term that that uh, they think describes um, Christianity today. Uh, it was a lot more contentious when the term was used, or when the term was at its height in the aughts in the 2000s during the Iraq War. Um, it was a pretty strong repetitious point of criticism for, from anti-war voices to look at the term Judeo-Christian 
as a neocon term that was used as a tool to get the Western world in general and the United States in particular to effectively do the foreign policy bidding of Israel. So do you think it was a cynical way for neocons to exploit Gentiles in order for them to get on board with an agenda that at least on the surface, doesn't really make sense. Why would it benefit white evangelical Christians? And you're saying they use Judeo-Christian to get middle America on board with the agenda? Yes, by tying Judaism and its contemporary existence in the Levant to tie that to American foreign policy, it was necessary to get a farmer in Iowa to believe that what was good for Israel was good for America. And I would argue whether it was cynical or not, the reason it was successful is because there's more than just a kernel of truth to it. There's a, there's a bushel of truth to it. Um, going back, I'll just uh, go back briefly to some uh, Christian doctrine or theological uh disputes or discussion i have uh matthew 5 verses 17 through 20 this is jesus uh, the preamble to the sermon on the mount he said jesus says do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i tell you until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished now, I, I understand that there's lots of debate over what that, that passage means, what the word fulfill means, whether the word fulfill is even the right translation. But I quote that just to say that it's not like they're pulling a rabbit out of the hat by linking Christianity to Judaism and uh, drawing the, the, what I believe is an inextricable link between the two. So I do think the doctrine matters in the sense that the reason why that was so effective on, as you said, a farmer in Iowa, why would a farmer in Iowa get on, um, conflate his interests with the interest of Israel? In my, in my view, that wouldn't have worked unless there was, like I said, a very strong basis for that, for linking those two. Well, that dispensationalist argument, again, that's something that's very novel in the history of Christianity. That's something that that is would be unrecognizable to Christian thinkers for at least 1,800 years. So, it, it, of course, it's indisputable that that Christianity came out of the Levant. But again, the argument with Islam holds. You, can, you don't have you don't have any modern Islam without Judaism either. So can we take that same line of argument and settle the issues between the Israelis and Hamas or the Jordanians or the Saudis or Egyptians or any other uh, Islamic Judeo conflicts? During their crusades, Tens of thousands of Jews were massacred by crusading armies that were headed to the Levant to throw Muslims out of, with the goal of uh, initially reconquering Jerusalem and then for two centuries trying to protect a Christian state in the Middle East uh, from Muslims. Okay, then I guess we're getting back to then if it was basically an insane idea back then that you would link these two, then why 
is it done today and done so successfully today? Or do you think it is successful? I think it, it's its success probably peaked after 2001 uh, in during the Bush administration when the neocon warmongering was at its height. I think it has trended downward since then. You can actually see that in the Google and Grams references to the term Judeo-Christian. You certainly don't hear it as frequently as you did 10 or 15 years ago. But I, I would posit that the primary reason is because Christianity is is dying, is effectively dead in the West, or it it's moribund. It, it really is dead already in Western Europe, and it's in the process of dying in North America. And so it is easily captured and uh, piloted by foreign policy interests outside of the United States. But I think, couldn't you uh, apply the, almost the reverse logic to that? If Christianity is weak, then appealing to Christianity by, because the, the appealing to Judeo-Christian is relies upon Christians caring about Christianity. If they don't, like, why would that religious argument even work on them if Christianity is moribund and uh, ineffective? Well, as the saying goes, that people are as right-wing as they're allowed to be. I think contemporary Christians are as Christian as they're allowed to be, and that provides a high-status elite sponsorship for justification for being Christian. If you are a Christian for the sake of, if you're, if you're a Christian Zionist, then you will have friends in the American power structure in a way that you won't if you're any other type of Christianity. It's, it's why evangelical Christians have more purchase than, say, Orthodox Christians in the United States. What do you mean by having more purchase? Ha- having more political representation, having more institutional power. I want to circle back real quick and get your thinking on, on when you said that you think that Jesus didn't come to in any way challenge any of the current existing laws Um but just to fulfill them, which almost definitionally, if the criticism is that they're not currently being adhered to correctly or they're not being fulfilled, then fulfilling them in opposition to the current ruling structure, I think, is definitionally challenging those laws. I think he's challenging the artificial um, crap that the Pharisees had laid on top of the perfect uh, laws of God, the Torah. He was not rejecting the Sabbath or any of the rules that God had set up. He was rejecting the artificial stuff that the Pharisees put on top of it. So, like, what about the dietary laws that are present in, say, Deuteronomy that precede the Pharisees, uh, for example, or in particular, the uh, Mark 5.17? Is that what it is? Um, It is Mark 7.19. Um, so yeah, the one you're referring to, I'll read the, um, the King James version. It says, because it enter not, it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. Um, as with almost everything in the King James version, it's pretty hard to understand. So I'm going to, uh, go to the NIV version now, which is. For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. So 
the then the NIV adds uh, something in parentheses that says, "In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean." Now, from what I understand, this was added at some point after the King James Version in around 1610, 1615, somewhere in there, because it wasn't in there, this this line at the end. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is in the NIV, which was finished in the 1970s. So at some point, unless it was, unless it was in some version before the King James Version, at some point between 1600s and 1970s, that line was added. And to me, that goes to the point of why would they feel... Who are the translators? Why would they feel it necessary to add that line unless they were trying to further the supersessionism viewpoint that the Old Testament or much of the Old Testament doesn't have to be followed anymore? Well, I think the parenthetical part is explanatory. The New International Version dumbs things down quite a bit. Um, Almost to the almost to the extent that it's too much, where you you have a parable given to you, and then it's explained in excruciating detail what it means when they're not particularly complicated parables to understand. But if we go back to find a uh, a version that predates the King James Bible, we look back at the Latin Vulgate, and we see the same uh, effective message that we get in the King James Bible and the New International Version. So Jesus say. Uh, saith to them, so are you also without knowledge? Understand you not that everything from without entering into a man cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but goeth into his belly, and goeth out into the privy, purging all meats. And so that parenthetical explanation, I, I don't know what other reading you can have of those two verses that contradict what the what is in the parentheses to give an explanation of what that means. It's it's sort of hard to follow because of the way that it's written. But clearly what Jesus seems to be saying is that it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. What matters is what you believe, what you think, what your intentions are. And so that seems to me to be undercutting not just the Pharisees' emphasis on strict adherence to the dietary laws, but these dietary prescriptions that were given in the first five books of the Old Testament predating the Pharisees that were operating in the time contemporary contemporary to Jesus. And additionally, Jesus heals lepers by laying his hands on them on the Sabbath, no less, in strict violation of the Jewish law at the time, which both forbid working on the Sabbath and also forbid touching lepers at all because it was said to make those who who came into contact with lepers not just physically unclean but also spiritually unclean. Yeah, and I just I don't know anywhere close to enough about the Old Testament and the rules to say which were, quote, legitimate and what was just added um, by the Pharisees for their own self-interest. But I, I take your point. I certainly take your point. Well, I think we're on to a digression here, but I take your point too, that clearly Christianity grew out of a Jewish state at the time. But I think it, it's difficult to just hand wave away the intervening 1900 years and then think that in modern society, we've picked back up where we should have been, except that Christian leadership 
going all the way back from from Paul through uh, John Paul II had it wrong, and now now we're getting it we're getting it right at this point. Yeah, and there's all kinds of examples like that. Um, this recent uh, document that was issued by the Vatican saying that it's now acceptable to bless same-sex couples and same-sex marriages. Um, well, I, I think that is, to be precise, there hasn't been any change in the teaching that allows same-sex marriages to be blessed. What the papal bull was clarifying was that, or was reiterating, not it was reiterating the fact that priests are allowed to bless same-sex couples, but not in the sacrament of marriage. Not not anywhere that I've read. Now, it will be, at some point, someone will interpret it that way, and that clearly is the intention, but that's right. not what it was explicitly said. But, and again, getting back to the letter versus the spirit, obviously, the spirit of that is uh, removing some of the stigma from same-sex uh, couples. So I thank you for that clarification. They are not saying that you can bless uh, gay marriages. So if they're not doing that, what, what do you think the intent was for issuing this declaration? Well, Francis is the Antichrist, and that certainly his intention is to get priests to interpret it either honestly or uh, furtively as allowing them to bless the sacrament of marriage among same-sex couples. And it is interesting to see the uh, many of the uh, clergy in Africa are rejecting this and saying, "Mind, I've basically they're saying we are disregarding this. We're certainly not going to be blessing any same-sex couples." So um, it's just that split is just I think going to continue to widen between the African Church, which if it doesn't already have more absolute numbers, probably will soon. That's certainly where the energy is in the the numbers are so you can look online and see all kinds of videos of um drag shows being held at churches you can see um churches being head headed by gay and lesbian pastors what that just obviously a hundred years ago that would have just seemed absolutely insane out of the question let alone a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago uh, how do you how do you explain that? What's your thoughts on on why that's happening? How it's happening? I think Robert Conquest's second law is applicable here. Briefly, it is the idea that anything that is not explicitly right wing or anything that's not explicitly traditional ends up becoming converged, becomes left wing, becomes progressive, and that's the case as these mainline denominations die out the shell that's remained is taken over by people who are do engaged in the same sort of status seeking that that leaders in all kinds of other institutions are engaged in and so effectively christianity like episcopal christianity or a lot of catholic dioceses and, and all the other mainline protestant denominations are engaged in something that is really only Christian vestigially, but not in terms of spiritually would be my argument. And I would argue uh, not scripturally either. Anecdotally, there is an Episcopal church near my house where from the outside you can see the in our house 
sign. It's a big banner. It's like 10 feet tall. The, the one that reads, in this house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Water is life. In re- we believe in religious freedom. Love is love. Kindness is everything, etc., etc. You see that. It's a 10-foot tall banner. And no hyperbole, there is not a cross visible anywhere from the outside of the, the the building. But you can see that huge banner that greets you as soon as you walk in. And adi- additionally, they have a, a trans flag flying. So we've talked about the um, gay pastors, lesbian pastors, um, trans flag, rainbow flags being on top of churches, the a Catholic church essentially um, giving blessing to same-sex couples, um, all of these things happening around the same time that the term Judeo-Christian is gaining prevalence. Do you think there's a connection between those two things? Yes, I think there's certainly a a correlation between the two, whether or not there's causation intentionally or not. Uh, Jewish social values are and continue to be far more left-wing than Gentile Christian values do on things like same-sex marriage and abortion transgenderism and you're referring are you referring specifically to American Jews here I am referring to all non-orthodox Jews there's about 10% of the the Jewish population in the United States I'm not sure what it is in Israel it's probably a higher percentage that have um, social values that are quite in line with conservative Christians um, in the United States, it's about 10% of the population, but they have no institutional power at all. Uh, while their numbers are growing, um, if they come to represent the preponderance of Jews in the West a century or two into the future, Judaism will look a lot more like like the Amish do in the United States today. That is to say, Orthodox Jews are, are right-wing and, and have no institutional power, just as the Amish today. But among the majority of Jews and all Jews with any institutional power, these social values are very left-wing. For example, if we look at abortion from the General Social Survey on the question of whether or not a woman should be able to obtain an abortion for any reason. So this is the most permissive, quote, extreme, unquote, support for pro-choice for any reason at all the woman decides that she wants an abortion up to the time of delivery and the percentages of people who believe that a woman should be able to make that decision without any sort of restrictions at all among uh, protestants is 36 percent among catholics 36 37 percent 36 and a half percent for catholics uh, among jews it's 80 percent among those who state that they have no religion at all it is 67 percent so we see that those who identify religiously not ethnically but religiously as jewish and there's a higher percentage of jews who support an abortion for any reason than there are even among self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics so that's a pretty significant divergence from the more mainstream American view on abortion. And you have similar uh, survey results for other social questions. So I, on the surface, I think you would look at that and say, okay, that's interesting. But we're looking at a group, Jews, who are 2% of the U.S. population. So then to say that 
to, to single them out doesn't really seem to make sense. So is there something more to that? Are they, I mean, I'm getting, what I'm getting at is Jewish overrepresentation in positions of power and influence. Yeah, it leads to a zeitgeist where those positions or those views on social issues become normative. Right. So there are some people who think it's it's a deliberate plot that Jews as a group are acting in their own self-interest, whether uh, directly or indirectly, and pushing their own values. You don't. Where do you come down on that? Like the Kevin McDonald culture of critique view that Jews have some evolutionary strategy that that explains a lot of this behavior. Yeah. What What do you think about that? Well, I'm not too familiar with it, so I don't want to strawman the argument. There, are, but there are a couple major objections that come up immediately. The first one is the fact that the total fertility rate for Jews in the United States, specifically those left-wing Jews, not the Jews that have values that are comparable to middle American conservatives, but the 90% of non-Orthodox American Jews to be below replacement fertility. So we're turning again to the general social survey from 2000 onward, looking at those aged 45 and up older to allow for completed fertility to have been achieved. We see that Protestants average 2.33 children, Catholics 2.45, Muslims 2.52, Jews just 1.82, and those with no religion 1.69, and of course ethnic Jews that do not identify religiously are overrepresented in this category of those having no religion. So for it to be an evolutionary strategy, while Jews have the lowest fertility rates of any religious population or really any ethnic population in the West is seemingly contradictory on its face. And probably even more devastating than that is the astronomical rates of outmarriage among contemporary Jews in the West. So looking at uh, something from Pew Research, these are responses in 2020. Jews who have married from 2010 to 2020 among non-Orthodox married Jews, again, who have married in the last decade, a staggering 72%, so nearly three out of four, are married to non-Jews. And from 2000 to 2009, it was 54%. Uh, from 1990 to 1999, it was 41%. 1980 to 1989, it was 45%. And going back before 1980, it was just 18%. So a generation and a half ago, fewer than one in five American Jews married outside of their religion slash ethnicity. And now, fast forward not even 40 years, and it's nearly three in four who marry outside. And for a population that represents just over 2% of the broader population, that is clearly not a strategy for posterity. It would be as if in apartheid South Africa, you had the white ruling class marrying and propagating uh, you know, three out of four of their offspring were mulattoes. And instead of marrying other whites, they were mostly marrying blacks and, and turning over their assets to their mixed race children and giving political power to those mixed race children, et cetera, et cetera, to, to maintain that that was a concerted strategy for maintaining white supremacy is 
seemingly ridiculous on its face, but that effectively is what is happening today in the West. So I just don't know how the idea that some grand evolutionary strategy can be reconciled with those two big counterpoints. So a related issue to all this is dual loyalty. You hear that word thrown around a lot, um, also in the, uh, a lot of times in the context of America first. Uh, what does it mean to be America first? Obviously, on the surface, it means you put America above any other country. Um, and this is a topic that uh, a lot, I've heard a lot of commentators pick up on. Uh, I would say it's kind of a, a debate among the right. Uh, is does America first apply to Israel? Um, because a lot of the same people who champion America first uh, make they'll, they'll sometimes they'll, they'll be happy to say America first applies to Russia Ukraine. But then when you say does America first apply to Israel, they have a very different answer. Um, so let me play a clip from Chuck Schumer. He was speaking at a, a an APAC conference. Now let me close by telling you about my name. As some of you know, my name is a Hebrew word. Schumer comes from the Hebrew word Shomer, which means guardian, watchman. My ancestors were guardians of the ghetto wall of Chortkov in Galicia. And when they came to Ellis Island, they said their name in Yiddish, Schoimer, and it got written down as Schumer. To you, I say this, that name was given to me for a reason. For as long as I live, for as long as I have the privilege of serving in the Senate from New York, I will unflinchingly, unstintingly, and with all of my strength, be Shomer Yisrael, a guardian of Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Yisrael Chai. In Israel and America, the Jewish nation lives now and forever. So I think here it's, it's clear from that clip uh, at least to me, that while Schumer is ostensibly a senator from New York, he is going to uh, weigh the interest of Israel, I would say, on the same level as he would the interest of the United States. And so the question is, well, what happens when the interests of the United States and Israel diverge? That's why we have terms like Judeo-Christian, so that the effectively Israel is thought of as the 51st state, whereas this stark contrast to something that just happened with Ilhan Omar, where there was a, a speech that she gave in Somali language that, that uh, ostensibly she said pretty much the same thing. But because nobody, it's not insinuated by any institutions of power that Somali is the 51st Somalia is the first 51st state in the United States. This is controversial, whereas what Chuck Schumer said isn't just not controversial, but it's it's almost required to be a sitting member of Congress or to be in really any decision-making position of institutional power in the modern United States. And people sometimes ask, uh, what's the problem with the United States supporting Israel? Uh, of course, we should support Israel. It's beneficial to the United States. To me, I think just in the past week, we've seen a clear-cut case of the cost of supporting Israel. The reason that those three uh, U.S. soldiers 
were killed in Jordan near the border with Syria, at least ostensibly, was uh, the attack was carried out because of what the U.S. how the U.S. is supporting Israel. So to say you can say that it's in the United States' interest to support Israel, okay, you can make that argument. But to say to on the to say that, but not to acknowledge the very serious costs of that support is very disingenuous. Um, when people in the Middle East, when when most people in the world look at what's happening, they see the United States as essentially a co-belligerent with Israel. There's very little uh, distinction made um, in a lot of people's minds between the United States and Israel. And uh, on that point, I, f- I find it interesting that the three uh, soldiers who were killed were all black and that made me think about what it made me wonder where the black where black Americans are on the Israel Hamas conflict. Uh, that's a perfect segue to a recent YouGov poll that that looks at that question in quite a bit of detail and breaks the responses down by race and a couple other categories on the question of whether sympathies are more with Israel or with the Palestinians among the general. U.S. population is three times more likely to sympathize with the Israelis than with the Palestinians. Among white Americans, it's actually four times as likely. So by a four-to-one rate, Americans sympathize more with Israelis than white Americans sympathize more with the Israelis than the Palestinians. Among blacks, it is almost evenly split. They are marginally more likely to say that they sympathize with the Israelis and the Palestinians, but it's a, a difference of three percentage points. And so when you look at that, I wonder when it's pretty evenly split uh, among black Americans on support for Israel versus Palestine, I wonder what people, what black Americans think when they see the first uh, three casualties um, are black Americans. And we can really open up quite a can of worms there when you start looking at uh, black views on uh, questions that are are quite sacred and taboo to be discussed in the United States. For example, in the same survey, uh, Pew asked about the Holocaust, specifically at, put the question to survey respondents of whether or not the Holocaust was a myth. And 12%, so that's one in eight, black respondents agreed that it is a myth compared to just 5%, so one in 20 of whites. Uh, it's one of those interesting dynamics <laughs> among the, what Steve Saylor would always call the coalition of the fringes, that in fact, Biden voters and Democrats are more likely, substantially more likely to assert that the Holocaust was a myth than Republicans or Trump voters are. So 7% of Biden voters say that the Holocaust was a myth. And that of course comes predominantly from black Biden supporters, whereas just 3% of Trump supporters do. So more than twice as likely, Biden voters are more than twice as likely to assert that the Holocaust was a myth than Trump supporters are. And that just hammers home the absurdity of people claiming that the MAGA movement and Trump are anti-Semitic. I mean, that the stats back that up being absurd and let alone Trump having a Jewish son-in-law and Jewish grandchildren. I just find that that funny that people try to try to make that anti-Semitism charge. Yeah. Also, it's it's worth noting that 
Uh, talking about Generation Zyklon, so the, uh, among those under 30, some 20%, so from 18 to 29, because this survey was only conducted uh, among adults, 18 to 29, 20% of respondents say that the Holocaust is a myth, compared to among boomers, those over the age of 65%, 0%, literally, of the 352 survey respondents over the age of 65%, not a single one said that the Holocaust was a myth, whereas one in five of those under the age of 30 did. And I'm actually surprised we've gotten this far into the episode without mentioning the Holocaust. Uh, I'm glad we mentioned it now because... Yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, the decline in the use and the emphasis on the the term Judeo-Christian tracks very well with the same with regard to the Holocaust. So we saw as as the Holocaust was occurring in, in the 1940s was when the term Judeo-Christian first began being used. Um, and it culminated or it reached its zenith point about 15 years ago and has declined slowly but steadily ever since. And we see, too, with the younger generations, the, the emphasis, the historical knowledge, the idea that the Holocaust is something that's front and center and the thinking of people as they navigate the world really is something that is a generational thing that's changing as the boomers exit the stage and younger generations come onto it. The idea that America needs to do Israel's bidding because of the Holocaust and in an effort to prevent the Holocaust from occurring again in the future is going to weaken. Mining that survey further, there's also a question about U.S. military support for Israel. And among those under the age of 30, more people believe that the U.S. should reduce its military support for Israel than think that it should give Israel more support. Whereas among those over the age of 65, they're four times more likely to think that Israel should receive more U.S. support than it currently does rather than receive less. So Zoomers are, put in another way, Boomers are about five times as likely to support increased military support for Israel than Zoomers are. I also want to play another clip. This is Anthony Blinken, the United States Secretary of State. Um, Shortly after the Hamas attack, he went to Israel, and here's what he said. I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, indeed, for Jews everywhere. In this moment, where evil, hatred, and madness have once more taken so many innocent lives, we must stand together, resolved to confront what is worst among humanity with what is best. So I do sympathize with that on a human level. I don't doubt the sincerity. Um, But to say that and at the same time claim that the United States is an uh, honest broker in this and that they are trying to reach a, a mutually beneficial or mutually agreeable settlement between Israel and Palestine. I just don't buy that, and I don't think most people buy that. And 
I think the reaction would not be the same if, say, Lloyd Austin went to any number of sub-Saharan African countries and started talking about how where the massacres on a regular basis are numerically a lot higher than what happened on October 7th in Israel and started talking about how, as, as an African, he understands at a deep human level how we all need to stand together and how the United States needs to get involved in every tribal dispute uh, south of the Sahara Desert. And rightly so, because that totally destroys the idea of nationalism. The question is not why that would be rejected, but instead why Anthony Blinken is not just permitted to, to allowed to get away with it, but is celebrated for doing so. And I think what we've been discussing here today gets at why. We'll wrap up there. Thanks for listening to The Reality Taboo. Talk to you next time.